0: This is our final installment of our series on people in crisis, a biblical perspective. And so I would like you to stand with me this morning, and if you will, we are going to read together from Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. This is what it says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, that are in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia. And to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came his sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell, or Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are about to take place after this. As for the majesty of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven church, seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pause and let's pray together. Father, again... We are so grateful and thankful for your love that you have expressed and exhibited in through and as Jesus Christ so extravagantly and so generously. And we thank you for the work and ministry of your Holy Spirit that takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible and applicable And available in our lives so that we may become the sons and daughters of God. And that we may also participate, be co-laborers together with you in what you are doing in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And so Father, we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear. Minds to understand, hearts to comprehend And also as we leave this property, this place, as we turn off the internet after the service. And we live our lives with our spouses where it is applicable and our families and with our friends in our neighborhood and where we get our services. That you would help us by your Holy Spirit to live out in meaningful, practical ways what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we ask now all of this, of course, in the glorious name, the powerful name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. In His name we ask these mercies. Amen. You may be seated. Our text today does two things for us. The first thing it does, it is our final installment in our series that we've been through on people in crisis. But the second thing it does, it provides a bridge that connects this series that we're currently in to our next series, which is going to be a series on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Now, our text today begins with, and identifies for us, our final person in crisis. And this is none other than John. There are three things about John that we need to sort of mention. The first one is that John is a disciple of Jesus. And not only is he a disciple of Jesus, but he is in fact the inner circle. There are five times in the New Testament where it tells us that the three, Peter and James and John, were with Jesus. But John's favorite way of describing himself in his own writing is as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John has a healthy sense of self-esteem and self-worth. But as a disciple of Jesus, John takes the Christian faith very seriously. Second, John, the biblical writer, is considered or credited with writing three different writings, or a matter of fact, five different writings, if the truth were told. The gospel that bears his name, which is the gospel of John, and the gospel of John is the greatest treatise or document that has ever been written on the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then, of course, he also is the writer of the three epistles that bear his name, 1, 2, and 3. And I'm hoping this fall, after we finish our next series, that we will get into the book of 1 John and spend some time there. And, of course, John wrote the book of Revelation, in which we find our text this morning. And the book of Revelation is probably the most unique of John's writing. The truth is, the book of Revelation is probably the most unique book in the entire New Testament. And maybe even the entire Bible, except, of course, for the prophet Ezekiel. That's a fairly unique writing. But all three of John's writings, the epistles, the gospel, and the revelation, were all written in the late first century, sometime after 89, into that time. And so as a writer, John takes words seriously because these words connect earth with heaven. The invisible with the visible, the natural with the supernatural, and the temporal with the eternal. But John is also a pastor. John was the pastor of the church in ancient Ephesus. And as a pastor, John takes people seriously. Everything that is written, everything that is revealed... In the book of Revelation involves and affects people, them then and us now. Someone made this statement that some people preach sermons and some people are sermons. And Pastor John is certainly one of those in the latter category. But all of that brings us to our text and the nature of John's crisis. Now one of the first things that we notice about in our text about John is that who he is and where he is and why he is where he is are all linked together. Now over the past 14 weeks, 15 including today, We have been looking at people in crisis throughout the entire Bible. And there are at least 15 different reasons why Christians go through difficulties and tribulations and hardships. And to use the words of our text, tribulations and patient endurance. And I'm not going to take time to read those because they're in your notes and you can look there but at least 15 but John gives us a 16th. John gives us another one he tells us that he is experiencing tribulation on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus now some people may say that's two but I'm taking them as one now as a result of or as on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus now this is both surprising And not surprising. It's not surprising because Jesus and Paul and others have warned us that this would be the case. Jesus says to us in that familiar text in John chapter 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you that in this world that that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. You will have hardship. You will experience crisis, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a life in Jesus Christ, or a godly life in Jesus Christ, will be persecuted will experience difficulty, tribulation, suffering, crisis. So at the same time though, the idea of tribulation, suffering, and patient endurance because we are Christians and particularly because we are Christians is a little surprising. That sometimes that you and I, we experience tribulation That requires patient endurance because we are Christians. We are Christ followers. We are disciples of Jesus. Our life sometimes is difficult solely because we are Christians. And if we were not Christians, our life would be easier. So where John is, is because of who he is. And this is one of the most important things that we are told about John because it connects John and Jesus. John is where he is on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But this has also made him who he is. And why he is where He currently is on the Isle of Patmos. But it also connects John and us. It connects you and I with John. He says right at the beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner. Your brother and partner. It implies that you and I, that we too will experience some of the things that John has experienced. And it is comforting to know that our experiences, the crisis that we've been through, the difficulties that we have endured, that they are not unique to us. That where we may find ourselves, currently others have been there before us. And then there is this, the island called Patmos. Patmos is a small, barren, rugged Greek island in the Aegean Sea. It's mostly made up of volcanic rock, a lot like Hawaii, but not at all like Hawaii. It is 16 kilometers long, it is 9.6 kilometers wide, and it is 48.2 kilometers in circumference. Patmos and the other, some of the other islands in the Aegean Sea were used by the Romans as penal colonies, as places of banishment and exile in the first century. They were a lot like South Wales Australia was for the British in the latter 18th century. And we are told that John spent 18 months on the Isle of Patmos. 18 months and how we got there was this way during the time of the Roman Emperor Domitian there was a cult called the imperial cult or the cult of the worship of the emperor and it was established in Ephesus in John's city and everybody was forced to participate in this cult of worshiping the emperor but, of course, John and his congregation would not. And persecution broke out in Ephesus. And John finds himself on Patmos, exiled. Now, I want you to follow me here. For John, the island of Patmos is a real, literal, geographical, and historical place. For us, the island of Patmos is a metaphor. For us, Patmos can be a place or a symbol for or of our tribulation, our suffering, our crisis that requires patient endurance. Patmos may represent in our lives pain and hardship. A time of grief and loss. A season of illness and sickness. An experience of heartache and disappointment. A time of dealing with disability and a struggle even with addiction. So whatever the crisis we have endured, are currently enduring or will endure, can be our island Of Patmos. Now, the name Patmos comes from the root meaning to tread underfoot or to suffer strenuously. I mean, think about that. Does it not feel sometimes like when we're in crisis that we are being stepped on? I mean, does this not describe the nature of some of the crisis that we have endured? Or are enduring, or maybe in the future, enduring? And there is this, Patmos also means my killing. Now, ironically, the disciple, Pastor John, was believed by the disciples that he would not die. There's a text in John chapter 21 where Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus is restoring uh, Peter back to where he's supposed to be after the denials. And, <clears throat> and Jesus is telling Peter that he is going to die a certain way and he's going there are things going to happen to his life. And of course, Peter, being Peter, turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, we know who that is. Following them, the one who also, John tells us, leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? John wants us to know how intimate he is with Jesus. When Peter saw him, when Peter saw John, he said, Jesus, Lord, What about this man? And Jesus, of course responds and says, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not going to die. John is the last of all the disciples of Jesus. He's the only one left alive. He will die, of course. But on Patmos, John experiences another kind of death. A killing of self. A time of death to self, of self-denial. And I think we all know that crisis and tribulation and suffering and endurance does that like nothing else can do in our lives. Crisis can bring the very best out of us or the very worst. And crisis can make us better or worse. But there's also this. On Patmos, on Patmos, John saw things that he could not and would not have seen otherwise or anywhere else he understood things that he may have never understood anywhere else or at any other time in his life if John had not been on the Isle of Patmos would he have received the vision of the book of Revelation and is that not the case with us as well, that in crisis we see things that we could not and would not see otherwise or elsewhere. And we understand things differently, don't we, than we would have anywhere else or any other time in our life. Crisis helps us. It enables us. It lets us. It forces us To see ourselves differently. It forces us, enables us, helps us, lets us see other people differently. And certainly allows us to see life differently and see faith differently. Because crisis changes us. It changes who we are and it changes how we are. In crisis and by crisis, we are changed in crisis and by crisis. We are made different through it, after it, than we were before it. It changes us. And then we come to this. During his 18 months of tribulation and patient endurance on that rugged And barren rock called the island of Patmos, John has a vision of Jesus. Revelation, the book of Revelation is first and foremost, a statement by and about Jesus. Without Jesus, Revelation is nothing, it's just another strange document. And if revelation does not point our attention to Jesus, then we simply have missed the point. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 begins this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And John writes in our text, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's Sunday and John is worshiping. And as John is worshiping on Sunday, he hears a voice. And he said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I just love that statement. And the reason why I love it is because we don't see a voice, do we? We hear a voice. But John turns and says, I turned to see the voice. And when John turns, he sees Jesus. And he has this glorious vision of Jesus Christ exalted and glorified. Listen as I read the text to you again. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. and. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze refined in a fire and his voice was like the roar of many waters and in his right hand he held the seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining, was like the sun shining in all its strength. And then John says this. And I love the next statement. It is probably one of my favorite statements in the entire Bible. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder? And when he turns... When John turns around, he knows it's Jesus. But Jesus looks different. Now, for those of you that don't know this, John has had previous experience with Jesus. John actually knew Jesus when, he, when Jesus walked the earth. He actually heard Jesus and seen Jesus and touched Jesus. And what an experience that must have been. But he had never seen Jesus glorified and exalted. One like, he says, like the Son of God. Why? Why like? Because John had never seen Jesus this way before. And the first thing he sees in his glorious vision, John sees Jesus differently crisis will do that for us too. We often see Jesus differently when we are in a crisis differently than we do at other times. And Jesus comes to us differently when we are in a crisis than he does to us in good times. When life is as it should be, and life is what we would call good, we have an idea of Jesus. And sometimes that idea is more romantic and sentimental than it needs to be. But when life is not as it should be, and things are not good, we need another vision of Jesus, a truer vision. And that's what our text is doing for John and for us. It's giving us a new vision of Jesus. It's giving us a different vision of Jesus. It's giving us another vision of Jesus. But follow me now. And John tells us in our text... And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, if you've been paying attention, verse 20 tells us that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And John says, and in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches, one, like the Son of God. Jesus is in our midst. Jesus Christ, by the person of the Holy Spirit, is in our midst in this service this morning. Jesus Christ is in the midst of your home this day or your room, or wherever it is that you are tuned in to this broadcast of this service, I want you to know that Jesus is in your midst today. And when we go at noon to anoint and pray for Sarah Quinn, Jesus will be in our midst, and we will be in the midst of Jesus. And Jesus is here this day. And to add to that, the church. The church is made up of individuals, of human persons, of people, of you and of me, of us. And does it not follow? That if Jesus is in the midst of the seven lampstands, if Jesus is in the midst of Glad Tidings Church, and we are the church that He is in our midst, that He is in the midst of your life, and He is in the midst of my life. You see, on the one hand, John, like Jesus, warns us that we will have trouble in this life that we will experience crisis that and some of that trouble will be particularly because we are christ followers but on the other hand john like jesus reminds us of the reality of the awareness of the presence of jesus in our midst Jesus is here. Why don't we just welcome him? And if we haven't already, let's just acknowledge his presence at home. Jesus is in your midst because you are a part of his church. And why don't you, right now, just welcome him? Acknowledge his presence. And then John says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Not only is Jesus Christ in our midst this day, but he is the first and he is the last. Now Revelation chapter 22 verse 13 tells us us the same thing but a little differently. It says this. Jesus is speaking and He says I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and I am the Z. I am the Alphabet. I am the Word made flesh. I am the first. And I am the last. The beginning And the end. So if God in Jesus Christ is the beginning and He is the end, then that means that you and I, that we are in between the beginning and the end. And we know that the beginning was good because we're told that in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 1, and generally it is agreed that the the conclusion, the end is going to be relatively good as well. and We are in between. Matter of fact, it's the only place that we can actually be. But in between the first and the last, is there any other place anybody in this room or online would want to be? But if we were also being honest, that while the beginning is good and the conclusion will be good, the in-between is not always good, as we classify good. In between the beginning and the conclusion are the ugly details, the messiness of life, the unfairness. The pain, the hurt, the loss, the disappointment, the crises. But we're not left there. We are not left there. Our text concludes this way Jesus speaks and he says to John, Fear not, and to us, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, the keys of death and hell. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, just before our text, the verse we didn't read says it like this I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, sorry, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is who was and who is to come the almighty and by the way in case we missed it revelation says it again in verse 4 and then again in 11:17 who is who was and who is to come who is he knows our present he knows what is happening in our lives he's in our midst he's the one who is and he is the one who was he knows our past he knows our failures our mistakes our regrets But he also knows our future. He knows what's ahead. Matter of fact, this is something to get our heads around. In theology, we call God the eternal now, that he's already in tomorrow. God is already in next week. He's already in December. He's already in January. January. He knows what's going on in COVID-19. He knows what's going on with your school and what's going to take place. He knows! Because He's already there. He's the eternal now. Let me finish with the famous account of Moses and the story of the burning bush where God appears to Moses, of course, And God sends Moses or is going to send Moses to the people of Israel in Egypt and to deliver them out of there. And Moses, of course, is a little nervous. And in Exodus 3.14, Moses says to God, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them that the God of our fathers has sent me to them, and they ask me what is his name and what shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Moses, when you go down, tell them that I am has sent you. I love what F.W. Borum in a sermon called A Box of Blocks says about this text. He says, for centuries and for centuries, that question Stood unanswered. I am. I am what? I am who? I am. He says that sentence remained incomplete. He called it the magnificent fragment. And he said Jesus filled in the gap that was so long stood blank. And John says... Or rather, Jesus says to John and to us, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hate. Helen Malakote said this. When we live in the past with our mistakes and our regrets, it's hard. Because Jesus did not say, my name is I was. She says, when we live in the future... With its problems and its fears and its uncertainties, it is hard because Jesus did not say, My name is, I will be. No, she says, when we live in the present, the now, it's not as hard. Because Jesus says, My name is, I am. I am with you in your crisis. I am with you in your loss. I am with you in your uncertainty. I am with you in your pain. I am with you in your struggle with cancer. I am with you. Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell in the grave. And that's got to be good news. That has got to be good news. If God is speaking to you right now, here in this room and at home, and you know God is speaking to you, for whatever reason, it's none of my business, I'm not going to ask you, nobody else is going to ask you, I want you to stand to your feet. Just stand to your feet right now, if God is speaking to you. And whatever it is that you're struggling with today, whatever it is that's going on in your life, Jesus' name is I am. The first and the last. Oh, and we can add in the other seven, the bread, the light, the door, the shepherd, the way, the truth. But today, in our text, I am. The first and the last. I am the living one. I died and I am alive. And He's in our midst. He's in the midst of your life and 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 my life. Jesus is here. And all things. Possible. So all over the room and online, just lift your hands and welcome Him. Lift your hands and just welcome Him. Lift your hands and tell Him what your need is today. And the rest of us, let's stand. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the living one. Let the glory of your presence fill this room. And fill every living room and every bedroom and every car and every vehicle, Lord. And every person that watches this archive in the weeks and months ahead. Let your presence be felt in their midst. For Jesus is here. Kaylee would you come with the band please and let's do that very last song the goodness of God because that's the only song that's going to work this morning so just keep your hands lifted up and just welcome him just welcome him just tell him what's going on in your life he already knows but it's good to talk about it it's good to get the pain out it's good to get the poison out because he's in our midst he's in our midst he's in our midst Jesus is here Kaylee lead us would you please
1: the goodness of God, I love your voice, you have led me through the fire, and in darkest nights, you are close like no other, I've known you as a father, and I've known you as a friend. In a good name
0: Goodness is running after me. It's hard for us, isn't it? Because we know our failures and our faults. And we think to ourselves, Lord, who am I to know that your goodness is running after me or that your goodness would run after me? I don't deserve it. No, you don't. Of course we don't. That's because of his grace. I was... I've often think of that text in Lamentations where it says, your mercies are new every morning. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. Lamentations chapter three, Jeremiah Lamentations, for those of you who want to go home and read it, it's a great text in there. It talks about the steadfast love of the Lord never fails, that his mercies are new every morning, great is his faithfulness. You know why his mercies are new every morning? I'm not sure why. But I only know this, I woke up this morning. Well, I woke up several times this morning, two and three and four. And I got a whole new set of mercies. And I haven't even exhausted Saturdays yet. But I get a whole new batch. So do you. No, you're right. You don't deserve it. And neither do I. That's why it's called His grace. His grace. Aren't you glad you belong to Jesus? Yes, come on. Remember this, I am is in our midst. Not just now, when we walk at the doors, when we go home, when we go to work, go to school, go to wherever we go, I am in our midst. God bless you, church.